May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, the lectionary does something very funny this Sunday, uh, which it often does, is it picks up in the middle of a story and the passage from 1 Kings chapter 19 will make no sense whatsoever unless it's placed in the context of what led up to Elijah being sent to a cave in Mount Horeb. And so please do open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, that's page 301 if you have one of the leather-bound Advent Bibles to see what it is God is doing in the life of Elijah. And both of our readings this morning from 1 Kings 19 as well as Matthew chapter 14 give us two portraits of faithful men, men who love the Lord Jesus, who have given up everything to follow him, and yet find themselves completely paralyzed by fear, by despair, by the reality of all that is going on around them. And so in order to understand why Elijah's at Mount Horeb in a cave and why Peter is out on the water, we have to know what has happened beforehand. Now I'm going to spend most of the time talking about Elijah, but we'll certainly bring Peter into the picture from time to time. Well, where exactly is Elijah? Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. Well, that doesn't exactly tell us where he is. As I mentioned earlier, he's at Mount Horeb, and Elijah is God's man, the great prophet, and he finds himself engaged in a great spiritual and political battle with Ahab, who is king. And Ahab is a very weak man, and he is married to that most evil of women in the Bible, Jezebel. And in chapter 18, Elijah has just had one of the greatest spiritual victories that he would experience. And that any of us would read the story and remark, what an amazing event. And that is Elijah's experience with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. To say that it is a spiritual high to see God send a fiery pillar down to consume the water-soaked altar. It's a remarkable thing. But as a result of that great miracle and Elijah in response slaying the prophets of Baal, Jezebel says, what's befallen the prophets of Baal is going to befall you. And so Elijah is scared. But these attacks just aren't political. They're satanic. They're spiritual. And Elijah becomes so downtrodden that he just wants to escape. He just wants to run away from it all. It would be no understatement to say that it is Elijah's darkest hour. He's depressed emotionally, he's de depressed spiritually. He goes so far in chapter 19, verse 4, that he asked God that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. 
Now, strangely, God doesn't answer his plea to take his life because Elijah has completely forgotten who he is and where he is and even the circumstances that he's in. He forgets himself because if he really did want to die, Jezebel was very happy to oblige. But have you ever been in a place like that where you're brought so low that you even wish death upon yourself? You want to escape. You want to run away. And like Elijah, you're going to ask the question, where are you, God? Where are you? In spite of the fact that Mount Carmel just happened and I saw your glory displayed in a magnificent way. Will you show up now? Peter saw the 5,000 men plus women and children fed. A great miracle. But when the waves rise and the storms rage, is that really you out on the water? Are you going to show up in the storm? I know you showed up at the multiplication of this little boy's bag lunch, but are you going to show up during the storm? It's interesting, isn't it, that we only begin to worry about where God is when we're in distress. When things are going well, we don't wonder where God is. But as I read the Bible and hear the question asked in its pages, and even in my own heart, where are you, God? Hiding behind that question is a much deeper question. Do you love me, God? We only wonder where God is because we wonder if he's going to love us in the darkest of times. Does he love us enough to show up when we're at the end of our ropes? That's Elijah's great need. Elijah needed to be loved. He needed to be assured of God's love. Have you ever felt that no one loves you? That really is the definition of loneliness, isn't it? You may be surrounded by people, but it feels as if no one loves you. And then along comes God. See how God loves Elijah in chapter 19, verses 5b through 8. And as Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree, this is after he said, Lord, take my life. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. When Elijah says, Lord, just take my life, what is God's response? To love Elijah by ministering to him and feeding him at the hands of angels. I love how the Bible tells us that the angel touched him as Elijah slept and God gives sleep to his beloved. 
How many of you are having a hard time sleeping? How many, when you are at rock bottom, all you want to do is sleep? And in the midst of this slumber, which is the only escape that Elijah knows, an angel nudges him and gently wakes him up and says, here, God has given you food and drink. And then God lets him go back to sleep. And the angel nudges Elijah again and says, see, God has more food and more water for you. He's preparing you for the next leg, the journey to Mount Horeb. And the Bible tells us that Elijah was sent in strength to Horeb. And that is where our reading brings us this morning. It's only after this care and restoration that God speaks an audible word to Elijah. And the prophet is honest with God once again and shares his desperation again. But note he does it in a very different way. A way that is marked by a perspective, namely that God loves him. Chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. God says to Elijah, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. It's a different word that Elijah now responds to God's word with. It's one that is given perspective. It's one that says, God, I know that I have a calling on my life and I have a job to do, but I'm the only one left. And when I go out and preach and I do the work that you've given me to do and you show up in the midst of that work and now they seek to take my life. And so God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And then all of these remarkable things happen. Strong winds that tear mountains and break into pieces rocks. An earthquake. Fire. And then the sound of a low whisper or other, it can be translated, thin silence. Not even audible, but clearly a spoken word. Unlike Carmel, God is not speaking here in the fantastic or the extraordinary. He's not in the great wind. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. But he seems to be in what we call the still small voice. And Elijah's posture is that of the faithful believer in Jesus, one of listening and watching. Lord, in my distress, I long for a word from you. Now, I hope that you're able to notice the difference in the way that the Old Testament speaks of God's encounters with his people and the way the New Testament speaks. In the Old Testament, we read, as we've read here this morning, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. But in the New Testament, we come to the word of the Lord. 
But either way, God dwells in his word. And that's what Elijah is listening for. But we don't need to situate ourselves on the mountain. We need to simply open God's definitive word to us. And the reason why God speaks is because he wants you to find him. John Chapman, Chapo, the great evangelist from Sydney, Australia, would often talk about uh, God being like a game of hide-and-seek with a child. And if you've played hide-and-seek with a small child, you know exactly what he's talking about. When my children were younger, they would always want to play hide-and-seek with me, and they would say, Daddy, let's play hide-and-seek. You shut your eyes, count to 20, and I'm going to go hide behind the couch, and then you find me there. And I would count, and I would open my eyes, and I would say, is Lily in the closet? And you would hear a little titter from behind the couch. No, she's not in the closet. Is Lily under the table? And you'd hear a little giggle from behind the couch. No, she's not under the table. Is Lily hiding up the fireplace and peals of laughter coming from behind the couch? And before I can get, to the, get behind the couch, she jumps up and says, here I am. Do you know that God is like that? Here I am. God wants to be found, which is why he speaks to us. God speaks to Elijah in clear terms, but Elijah is ready to listen because he is established in God's love for him. And so what does God actually say? What's the content of his message? Elijah responds in the same way he did earlier on, saying, I'm the last one. I'm left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. And the Lord said to Elijah, verse 15, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And then he gives a list of instructions for Elijah. In a word, God says to Elijah, Get to work. But he also gives Elijah perspective. We see the prophet who would succeed Elijah, Elisha mentioned here. And the work that he would do. God is saying to Elijah, you are given to a limited sphere and action. As awful as things have been for you lately, you need the perspective to know that there's there's something much bigger at stake than even your own life and your own calling. And he reminds Elijah to know his place. which is in the arms of a merciful Savior, knowing and living for God's glory. And that's what our aim is as believers, isn't it? To live for God's glory. And so where is God in the midst of your own life? God is not only in the fantastic or in the mundane. He's not even restricted to what we perceive as good. God is where he wills to be, where he's supposed to be. He's there in the still small voice. He's there at Mount Carmel. He's there feeding the 5,000. 
And he's also there on the storm, in the storm, on the waves. And when you begin to sink under and you pray that short but glorious and effective prayer, Lord, save me, God's arm is never too short to save. But especially in these latter days, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can find him in two very particular places. We can find him in his word, and we can find him dwelling within us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually makes you his temple, his dwelling place. His spirit, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, now dwells within you. And that brings us full circle to the question behind the question I mentioned earlier. We will only know where God is or be assured of his presence when we know his love and are assured of it. I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does Elijah need? What does Peter need? What do we need? We need strength. But it's a strength that comes from outside of us. This is why Paul writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 5, Beginning with the sixth verse. <clears throat> For while we were still weak, at the right, I'm sorry, verse five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God gives us strength by pouring his spirit into our hearts. It's when God shows up. <coughs> Excuse me. And so when you're at your lowest and you're wondering where God is, what do you need? You need strength. And where does that strength come from? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and God himself speaking by his spirit through his word. God loves us in order to draw attention to his glory made manifest even in our weakness. Because God's glory is the salvation of the nations and the salvation of you. This is why he continues in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, while we're laid low, hiding out in Mount Carmel, wishing that God would just take us away to deliver us from it all, while we're out on the waves in the midst of the storm and sinking, while we were still weak, at the right time, in God's time, Christ died for the ungodly.
We need to dissuade ourselves of the mistake that God only shows up in the fantastic. Because the testimony of the Bible is that, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. And his rod and his staff, they comfort you. And that God is not interested in saving the strong. He's interested in saving the weak who cry out to him. My friend is uh, the dean of an Anglican cathedral in Columbia, South Carolina, and he has two adopted children from China. And while over there to adopt one of the children, uh, they uh, took the child from the orphanage, and this was their first experience with them, and began to walk through the city where they had adopted this child. And they went into a shop, and they know just enough Mandarin to get themselves in trouble. And while they're in the shop, one of the shopkeepers saw this child that they had adopted and quickly realized that they were with the Edgars. But the Edgar's other children, blonde hair, blue eyed, were fascinating to the shopkeeper. And so the shopkeeper kept looking at the blonde haired children and kept looking at the Chinese child who had a cleft palate. And finally, the Chinese shopkeeper asked the Edgar's, Are you Christians? And the Edgar's didn't know how to respond because it's China. But they said, Yes, we're we're Christians. And almost to themselves, the shopkeeper said, only Christians take the bad ones. My friends, only God takes the bad ones. Thanks to Jesus. God takes the ones who are sinking. God takes the ones who are laid low and can't even feed themselves. When you know that God loves you, You need not wonder where he is. No matter how low you have been brought, no matter how ugly or bad you feel and may in fact be, God takes the bad ones and God pours his love into you by his spirit for those who cry out to him. Let us pray. God, so many of us right now feel like we're in a cave in Carmel, that we're trying to walk on water in the midst of a raging storm, and we're concerned about Jezebel, we're concerned about the waves, but there you are. You're in the cave, you're on the sea. And your arm is never too short to save. And so, Lord, in our weakness, Lord, save us for our good, but above all, for your great glory. Amen.